You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Carl Marlantis graduated from Yale University and was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. He served as a Marine in Vietnam where he's awarded the Navy Cross, the Bronze Star, two Navy Commendation Medals for Valor, two Purple Hearts, and ten Air Medals. His first novel was Matterhorn. His new book is What It Is Like to Go to War. Thank you for speaking with me, Carl. You're welcome. It's nice to be here. This is a kind of book when you read it you think, how come nobody thought about this 50 years beforehand? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I did think about it 40 years ago, but I, I uh, uh, you know, it, it's hard to say. I think that one of the things is, is just we have this sort of code in, in this country of ours about not talking about serious things like war. I mean, you know, it's, it's and so I think that to, to, to talk honestly about it, write honestly about it, has just been a long time coming. So uh, I just decided... Well, there's no sense in, in writing stuff that, you know, is just ordinary stuff. And, and I was trying to learn about my own experiences. I was trying to come to terms with my own combat experiences. And so if you're going to do that well, you have to write it honestly. Otherwise, you're fooling yourself. So that's sort of why it, it, the genesis of it. Well, it's a, it's a remarkable book in, in a variety of ways. It's a fantastic companion to your novel and sheds a lot of light. When we read this book, we can see your novel in a whole new light. And also the novel sheds light on this book as well, mm-hmm. giving us kind of the gritty underpinnings. So I'd like you to just talk about um, just the conception of the decision to write a, a work of nonfiction, right. having followed the, the fiction, which was so powerful. Yeah. Well, it, it, they were, as you know, Matterhorn took 35 years to get published, mm-hmm. and uh, after about 15 years of, of you know rejections, I, uh, you know, a couple friends of mine, more than more than two, who, who of course know everything about the publishing industry, said, "Well, of course you can't publish a, a big non a big fiction book. No one knows your name, and it's impossible. You need to write some nonfiction. Then, if you write the nonfiction book, then your name will be known, and then you can then you can get the other one published." And, so that got stuck in the back of my mind. And, and actually, around 1990, um, I, I was still working on Matterhorn, improving it, and, and I'm glad that actually I actually had that much time. It was a better book. But there are things that I, you can't say in fiction that you can say in nonfiction and vice versa. For example, if I wanted to actually philosophize about something, here's what I think uh, about this, and you put it into some character's mouth in a fictional piece, well, it's just bad fiction writing. I mean, people groan and uh, I don't want to have that, you know. And and there were things that the novel was bringing up, and just as I was growing older, things that were coming up that I uh, I had to deal with. I mean, my PTSD was got bad in the 90s. I mean, I, and, uh, uh, I mean, I was having nightmares. I was having problems, you know, with my family and rages i mean all the all the symptoms and so i was going like something's wrong here and the way i think about things with quotes around think is i tend to write them down and then it's like oh is that what i'm thinking <laughs> you know i mean it's just the way i work and so it, the book was actually written simultaneously uh with my reworking of matterhorn well one of the things i think that is uh so remarkable about this book 
is the the clarity with which it's written, the 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 simplicity of the points, and right from the beginning you make it clear to us. And this is something that I, all the wars, all the things you've seen, that uh, soldiers, the warriors, go from being grunts to being gods in a single shot. Right. Yeah, it was, it's something that occurred to me was was uh, you know just one of these ideas that hit me. Uh, we 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 raise all our kids and we're all raised to uh, you know thou thou shalt not kill and you have the idea that really you know the taking of life is uh, that's something that's a godly act that's not something humans should should be concerned with. Uh, as well as, you know, certainly in some religions, the sacrificing of life for others, which certainly is Christianity. Uh, that's also something that gods do, and uh, even though humans get involved in that more often. But you take a 19-year-old kid who's been raised this way, and then suddenly, instead of thou shalt not kill, he's, uh, it's okay, go for it, do it. And they, in the course of that, the experience is so intense I uh, I likened it to a mystical experience. I mean, the mystics uh, always have um, uh, their own death always in mind, and uh, they're always. I mean, they do psycho spiritual exercises to stay in the present. Don't go into the past. Don't be thinking about the future. They get to a position where they are willing to sacrifice their own egos uh, for the good of other people. And they're usually a member of a large, larger group, like the monastery or convent or the, the ulam or the, you know, the church, the sangha. Every one of those things happens in combat, every one of them. And, I, and it occurred to me that, wow, you take this 19-year-old who's gone to the mountain like that and had this experience that is virtually indescribable. It's the same problem that the mystic has when the mystic comes back from that experience and people say, well, what was that about? And it's like virtually indescribable. And they're, so they're in similar situations. And I don't even know if, if war combat is just the dark side of the same coin because I've, uh, you know, we have a sort of a pixie dust view about spirituality here in America. It's like it's all light and all good, right? But a lot of religions in the world that see the dark side of, of spirituality as well. And uh, and so I, that's what got me thinking about this, this uh, difficulty of coming back from an experience like that and not only being able to reconnect and talk about it, but just settle down. And I found that in my own life it was extremely difficult. Now, um, this book uh, is written with some goals in mind. You, you, have, you, have some, you wanted to do something with this mm -hmm. book. So talk a little bit about deciding what you wanted to do with this book right. and how that influenced the writing of the book. Okay. Well, there were several goals. The one that you started, we started talking about, of course, coming to terms with my own experiences and trying to sort out a major part of my life that needed sorting out. But the other thing is that I began to think, I said, if I'm going to take the time and effort to write this, I would like to, hopefully, other veterans would read the book. And if there were things that I've thought about that would ring a bell with them and help them in their uh, reintegration into society, then I feel like that would be a good thing to have happen. And secondarily, uh, young people who are uh, contemplating the, the military as a career. Um, I'm not a pacifist. I, I'm very proud to have been a Marine. Uh, Commandant says we're still Marines, so I'm still a Marine. And uh, I, I don't want any romantics joining the Marine Corps. I want, I want people to really understand what they're going to be getting into uh, 
because if they don't really understand what they're going to get getting what they're getting into, it's going to be much harder for them to come back from that experience. If you know ahead uh, before the experience, this is what's going to happen. This is what the way you're going to feel. You're going to have difficulty with this. When those moments come, it's the oh oh yeah, I remember reading about this. This though this is what's happening. So your your consciousness is just that much. Uh, more improved and you're faster to sort of make these uh, changes, make these adjustments. And then ultimately I, I wanted the loved ones of veterans to be able to read the book because it might help explain that this person who came back is not the person who left and how can they uh, try and bridge this gap uh, of reintegrating with the returning veteran which again is, is, is difficult because not just that the veteran had this different experience, but both the veteran and the loved ones at home uh, are very reticent to talk about that experience. And of course that means that the reintegration is just way more difficult because of that. Your first experience with, with death and, and seeing this um, seen it happen came as a as a very young boy w with your grandfather Axel. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I used that opening scene. There's there's a scene. Uh, it was very it was very important to me. I was young. I was probably you know, 13, 14 when that happened. I have to do the math. But anyway, uh, um, my grandfather Axel, a Swede, obviously, uh, was a fisherman, uh, and. Uh, we, my brother and I, uh, alternated helping him uh, because he had lost his leg in a logging accident. So he needed someone to help pull the boat underneath the net. And so, uh, while my friends were working in restaurants, I'd be complaining about having to be with my grandfather Axel. But I look back on it; it was a wonderful moment. But we hit. It was. It was. It was in the in the night, and there was a huge sort of thunk, and and uh, I could see that there was a gaping. Uh, sort of hole in the cork line where where it went down some very heavy animal had hit it and we were afraid it was a sea lion so um, my grandfather got up in the bow with the rifle and I steered the boat up and when we got to the place where that had happened it turned out to be a very large green sturgeon and green sturgeons are primitive I mean they have like plates on them they look like dinosaur fish and it's undulating down there. You can just see it underneath the dark water. And, uh, you know, my grandfather has a much more practical view of life. I'm the romantic in the family. And he's going like nine cents a pound. Look at this. I mean, they, you know, they use it for cat food. Um, and uh, I, uh, so we hauled it in. And because we were still had room in our fish box for more salmon, which is what we were really fishing for. 33 cents a pound. Um, I, uh, 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 we threw it in the, you know, we had to haul it, and you don't throw, you know, four or 500 pounds of fish into a box without some effort. And that animal wouldn't die. That all night, I mean, that animal kept breathing, you know, and breathing. And I kept, I was, I kept going over there because I, and it's just one of those experiences that happens in and out, and, and this sort of sense of, life and death all being connected I had this sort of experience that night on the boat and it hit me that when you're in the presence of death then you are in the presence of the holy because that's that's really what we're talking about here that other world and watching that sturgeon go through that travail uh, was just enormously um, important to me and it also happens to be a very archetypal uh, image. I'm, I'm into the archetypal images. It's uh, 
the reaching for wisdom of Finn McCool uh, burned his finger on a salmon and stuck it in his mouth and that's what gave him the wisdom uh, so th th that combination is where I, I opened the, the, the book with because of that and obviously the connection with Zoomer who was trying to stay alive breathing which is the connection tell us about Zoomer and, and tell us about integrating the passages that are more discursive where you're talking about um, more general things, your feelings and your philosophy, mm -hmm. and bringing up the literary illusions, which you do so well, with the passages of powerful, incredible memoir that you bring mm -hmm. in. Well, Zoomer was a, a, a radio man, and he had been shot uh, through the through the chest and uh, through one lung, and there was a large exit hole out of his back. And uh, what you have to do is, with someone like that is lay them with the, uh, the good lung, uh, lay them on their side with the good lung up so that all the blood is, is going to be flowing into the other lung, which is useless anyway, but you can't have blood flowing into the good lung because he'll suffocate. And so, he, but when you have half of a lung, you have to breathe twice as fast. So even if you're laying there, it's like you're, you're running a race because that one lung has, you know, to keep enough oxygen in your body. And so, uh, we had to keep him awake all night, if you, and he was in great pain, but if you gave him morphine, he'd fall asleep, and then, of course, he'd be dead. And so it was just amazing to me that it, in order to stay alive, he had to, he had to stay in pain. And uh, I'd tell him stories. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd be doing other stuff because we were under attack, and, you know, there'd be quiet lulls, and I'd go back and see how Zoomer was doing, and I'd tell him a story or two, just, you know, the normal buck-up kid, we'll get out of here. Uh, and uh, th that reminded me of the time with the salmon, and, and I told him that story. Now... I mean, the sturgeon. Sometime after this, you got to see a, a, a chaplain mm -hmm. who, who brought you Southern comfort, but not the kind, <laughs> not spiritual comfort. No. Which is, I think, I, this is your first, I think, intimation that there was something seriously askew with the our modern approach to war exactly um that, that actually had happened some months earlier the, the event with zoomer is after i'd been there quite a while and I'm, it, it was christmas time and um we uh, were in a, a very exposed position and for some reason a couple of pieces of artillery had gotten left behind there was a big operation in the valley uh, about 30 kilometers from where we were and uh, the rest of the company had to get pulled out as well as, uh, uh, it, but there wasn't enough chopper supply and, the, and we were shrouded in fog in the mountains. And so they left me with one platoon to guard these, these few artillerymen that were still left there and, and their artillery pieces. And we had to pretend that we were a full company because they, the NVA, very sophisticated soldiers, they monitored our radio nets all the time. And so here we have one-third of the people, and we're trying to carry on uh, acting as if we're three times as many, which means we're not sleeping and we're scared because if the ruse fails, it's like, oh, you know, this is a good opportunity to kill, kill a Marine platoon pretending to be a company. So I was exhausted and I was frightened and it happened to be the first time that I was left with that kind of responsibility. It was early in my tour and it was Christmas time. And after, you know, eight or ten days of this, we're just dragging our rear ends and it's Christmas and uh, we hear a chopper way down in the valley below us, you know, they couldn't find us because we were shrouded in the, in the monsoon fog. And finally, up 
crawling up the slope of, of a hill to, right above the treetops out pops a battalion chaplain and these are these are navy officers that are good well-meaning people i mean and the guy was i uh, 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 risking his life to come out to us to help us out at Christmas time doing his job. But what he did is he got off the chopper and he uh, was sort of hail fellow well met. He hands me a bottle of Southern Comfort and told me a dirty joke. And I was appalled and I was angry, but I wasn't, I wasn't a mature enough person. I was 20, just 22 or 23 at that point. And I wasn't mature enough to understand what was really going on. And what was really going on is that I was involved in something dead serious. We're talking about life and death, and I'd already lost several guys because we'd been hit several times. So I'm up there with their lives and my life at stake, and some guy comes out and wants to tell a joke and give me a drink. And it was like, no, you don't get it. We're, in, we're into something way more serious. And like I said in the book, when you're in the presence of death, you're in the presence of the holy, and you come in and make dirty jokes and, and share, you know, bottles of, of alcohol about it, it's like, no, I don't think you're there yet. You don't understand. And like I said, I, I've always felt bad because, quite frankly, he was, he was trying to be a good guy, um, but he didn't get it, mm. you know. That's, and that's our culture. That's our culture. Now, yeah. you talk about what you call the Temple of Mars, and this mm -hmm. is how you refer to those who fight for us as warriors. Mm -hmm. So I'd like you to talk about using that term, which you use a lot in the book, mm -hmm. and tell us how when uh, warriors come to, into the Temple of Mars, you talk about two kinds of initiation experiences. Right, yeah. Well, a lot of, a lot of <laughs> that's a question that's got, we're going to cover a lot of ground here. Okay. Um, first of all, you know, my definition of a warrior is that it's a person who takes sides and is willing to risk their own life in order to save the people on his side and also is willing to use violence to stop the other side from using violence against his side. So that's, that's my definition of a warrior. In order to get into these, these positions, I mean, in the olden days, I mean, I'm talking 5,000 years ago when, when we were more Stone Age people, uh, but in some ways more civilized. In some ways closer to the spiritual. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we went through what they call the Enlightenment, and I find that kind of an ironic statement because I think that we, we left a lot behind when, uh, when we began to trash uh, our, our own religions. I understand that because our, our religions at that point and even today are often is shrouded in... in uh, um, What's, what's the right word? Superstition is anything else. But in these older, older cultures, they, it was very important for them to have adults at, who were willing to face death because the women faced death in childbirth. I mean, it was serious. I mean, when they were having babies, it was, you know, there was no, uh, you know, immediate help from the hospital or anything. And, and many died in childbirth. So giving birth to keep the tribe going involved coming to terms with death, and hunting, which is what the men did to provide protein so that the babies and the women could live, also involved being able to face death. And you had to have, you had to have uh, the children transformed so that they could uh, carry on these tasks, which today we don't have uh, ceremonies that do that. I mean, they were just called initiation rites. 
And there's two levels, and I, this is not me, it's a guy named Joseph Henderson, who's a very well-known Jungian analyst. He actually studied with Carl Jung. Um, he, he pointed out to me in a conversation, he says, there's two levels of, of initiatory experiences. There's the ones that prepare you for roles in society. That's the classic one of the uh, the intern in the hospital. They just, you know, they, they treat them just like hell and they, you know, they don't get any sleep and they go through this sort of, you know, uh, hazing, basically, and then they end up being doctors. That's a role in society. The more important, the one which comes next and is different is the one that I'm talking about where you actually realize that you are mortal and we have very few of those, I think, and, and certainly combat, I think, can count for that, other than that there's no one guiding you generally. And there's older initiatory rights, there was always the older women and the older men that sort of held your hand through the process. But uh, it was those, it was when you become aware of your mortality and really grasp it that you grow up. That's when you actually become an adult. And this, the current culture, uh, Quite frankly, I think we do have an enormous number of, you know, 40, 50-year-old children running around because there, there is any, nothing that actually sort of hammers into their head that, I'm sorry, you're, you're temporary. That gives you a very different view of the world. And uh, it goes along with my idea, you know, that we like our religions to be pixie dust and we like to believe we're immortal. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not true. <laughs> One of the things that you talk about <clears throat> is uh, sending men into combat and the, the problems of killing without uh, a psychic armor, without mm -hmm. spiritual armor. Yeah. And I think this is one of the key concepts in this book. Yes. Yeah. Now, one of the things you talk about, and I think this is really interesting, you talk about your own experience about coming back uh, from uh, a mission from R and R, and where you <clears throat> on R and R, and you'd like been out there killing people, mm -hmm. and you then you end up uh, ended up stealing a car, right? <laughs> and I think that's such an interesting <laughs> yeah, uh, way to put uh, a juxtaposition. It's, it's it, I mean it's so bizarre. I mean uh, yeah, we're, we're we're killing people, and then I then I, then I get an R and R rest and recreation. Uh, and you get, uh, we got seven days uh, to sort of, you know, go rest and recuperate. And so uh, you get on an airplane that's just hired, the government hired these things. I, I think this was Continental Airlines and there's stewardesses tripping up and down the aisle in high-heeled shoes and nice tight skirts. And they're serving us Cokes and peanuts because nobody's old enough to drink. So, you know, and, and I happened to have an R&R an, an &R to Australia, uh, which I waited for a long time because that was a prime spot to, to be able to go. And um, I uh, ended up on a farm in the outback of New South Wales with a family and uh, who had a couple of lovely daughters. And uh, one of the daughters had told me that there, and a, the guy, that a friend that I was with, that there was a party in town, which was about 40 miles away, 30, I mean, they were way out there. And, and uh, you know, Charlie and I wanted to go to the party and uh, uh, there's no way to get into town. And the owner of the farm had uh, gone to sleep with his wife and uh, we want to go to the party and it's getting late, it's dark, you know, and so you're so used to solving your problems without any regard to the law. I mean, if someone's in your way in combat, you just shoot them and they're out of your way. 
And it was like, well, we got to go to this party. I mean, come on, you know. So I actually snuck into the, this couple's bedroom and went through the guy's pants pockets, which were laying, which were on the on the hook of his bed on the bedpost, pulled his keys out and took the car, and uh, didn't think twice about it. I mean, that was that was what was interesting to me. I didn't even think I was stealing a car. It was just. I'm just solving a problem here. I want to go to the party. Da, 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 da. The, the ideas of the sort of moral, morality of the situation. Well, it's about four in the morning, and Charlie and I are having just this fabulous time in this town called Young, Australia, and lots of Australian girls, and, and, and quite frankly, most of the guys were getting drunk over on the other side of the room, and so we had them all to ourselves. There's a knock on the door, and there's some policemen there. We're looking for the people who have stolen a vehicle, and we find the vehicle outside here, and it was like, dum, 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 you know. So they took us to jail. I mean, this guy was P.O.'d. I mean, you know, we stole his car. And um, luckily, he didn't press charges because he'd been a veteran of World War II. And he, and, uh, he came down to the jail. And uh, all right, he says, I'm not going to press charges. He says, I know that you guys have been in combat and you just got out. And he says, you just can't behave like this. And he says, but I know how crazy it can get. And he, he dropped the charges. Now, uh, you have a chapter on, on killing. Mm -hmm. And, in, you know, I just talked to George Pelicanos, and, and he wrote a novel about an uh, Iraqi vet mm -hmm. who had who was just come back. And he says the one thing they don't want to hear is the question. What's it like to kill somebody? Did you kill somebody? Is that the one you're referring to? Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think you, your exploration of this, I think, is one of the most powerful parts of, of this book. Yeah. Well, I talked a little bit about it, but are you, are you asking about handling the question, or are you asking, well, about what, what, are you asking the question? <laughs> <laughs> Talk about handling the question and, and, and how you... One of the things I think you do so well in this book is to set down in prose a lot of things that we see talked about on TV or in movies mm -hmm. and stuff. But when we read them, it's a really, really different experience. Yeah. Well, the, the question is, of course, um, at the heart of, of it. It's, it's like, what is, in fact, really, really different? People have been in situations where they've suffered from hunger, and they've been in situations where they've suffered from cold and misery and blisters on their feet. I mean, we sort of can relate to that. The one that we can't relate to, unless we've been in combat ourselves, is the constant fear that someone's going to kill you and killing someone else. And yet, if you, if you can't talk about those two aspects of your experience, it will be extremely difficult to re-enter normal life. You tend to sort of stay isolated and, uh, you know, go down to the VFW or the American Legion bar where you can talk to other combat veterans and, uh, you know, who understand you. And then you're not afraid of saying something that's going to really just incredibly kill any conversation you have. because. When you are dealing with death like that, you can you make jokes about it. I mean, you make jokes about mutilated bodies, and going from the context of a place where you're doing that back to good old civilized America, you just can't do that. And so 
you know, it's like, I know that I can't do that. But if, how far can I go toward describing things, too? That's the other issue. It's like, if I describe what I really saw and I really felt, these people may not ever want to talk to me again. Or they may think I'm just a cold-blooded nut killer uh, because they don't understand uh, what changes go on when you are put into those situations like, like combat veterans have been put into. So, so all of those things are... Uh, uh, keep veterans quiet, and then the knowledge that these, I call them civilians, the loved ones of the veterans have, is that, well, the veterans are going to be reticent to talk about this, so I'm embarrassed to ask them. So you got both sides being quiet, and you can't come back home until you start to talk about your experience so that you can somehow, um, I think the word is... Um, get some sense of perspective, uh, actually uh, make it more uh, uh, with less sort of emotional buzz to it. Uh, if, you, if you keep quiet, that you, just, you have that emotional buzz about the experience and you carry it to your death, or you start doing a lot of drinking or drugs, or I, I got into mountain climbing, I mean, you know, things like that that sort of keep me from actually dealing with it. So the question which you, you asked is the important question. Tell me your experience. If if I can't understand your experience, how can I how can I relate to you honestly? It's 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 a bigger experience than anything I've ever had. I'm talking from the viewpoint of a loved one, and the loved one has to be prepared for the veteran to just snap their head off because sometimes the veteran isn't ready, especially when they're young. They're gonna be they're gonna be 20, 21 years old, and you're gonna ask them, you know, don't don't ask it this way, you know what was like to kill someone, that'll be sure to get no response. But if you ask it, I really love you. I really want to know what happened to you. It's a part of your life that I want to understand because I want to connect with you. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, what it was it like to go on a combat patrol? Or what was it like to, you know, live there every day? What would normal days be like? What would, you know, there's ways you can get the veteran talking. And if the veteran says, I don't want to talk about it, well, that is not the sign that you say, okay, it's done, it's a dead deal, we're not going to talk about it, ever. It's like, okay, give him six months, let's see if we can raise the question again. Eventually, if the veteran feels comfortable, if you are on the veteran's side, you just want to know, you don't want to make any, you don't want to condemn him, you don't want to make a moral judgment about it, you just want to understand what happened, then that feeling of safety is going to finally break through and the veteran will probably open up because he wants to connect. He wants to come home too, you know, but we've got this code of silence. I talk about this, the code of silence in our culture. Yeah, and this, it brings up what is so important, what I think brought about your novel and brings back all the memoir parts of this book, the importance of storytelling, to be able to tell a story and to be able to hear a story beyond mm -hmm. both sides of, of that divide. Yeah, no, absolutely right. I mean, storytelling is in fact a very powerful tool and guess what uh, you know primitive tribes have told stories of battle around the campfires for you know millennium and one of the one of the reasons and, and one of the powers of literature is that uh, like why I wrote Matterhorn in, in part there's millions of reasons why I wrote, wrote a novel is that if you can identify with a character that is going through certain uh, activities like war, you get out of your own skin and you begin to see the world through that character's eyes. 
And good literature is the way that this can happen. In fact, one of the tests of good literature, to me, is whether or not living through a character's skin and experiencing what the character experienced is a transforming event in your own life. In other words, by the, when you put the book down, do you see the world differently than you did before you read it? Because a person that goes into combat will see the world differently after they're through with it and, and will be changed. So literature is a way that you can do that. You're not going to experience combat like for real, but you're going to be able to get closer than uh, not reading it at all. Uh, so storytelling in that regard is very good. Storytelling is also very good because it's a way of uh, opening up, you know, if you're the veteran, um, opening up your, um, your own heart to what actually happened to you because you, instead of having it stuck inside, so to speak, I mean, in your psyche, you tell a story and out it comes, and now it's out in front of everybody. And you, you can see it just as well as anybody else can. And so the story in some ways takes the steam out of the whole experience by sort of, it's a pressure valve, it's a, like a release valve uh, that, that helps you once again reintegrate. If you, if you can't tell the story about what happened to you, you, the odds are very high you're going to have a very difficult time getting back to normal again uh, without crutches like drugs and alcohol or or, you know, rage, uh, the, all the symptoms of PTSD. But I, I, I just want to say one thing. One thing that's remarkable is that veterans don't want to be treated like victims. They're, they're not victims. They've had a horrendous experience, but they don't want people saying, oh, you poor thing. I mean, that is not what they want to hear. They want to just be able to relate again. And I think that's an important aspect of, of this relating to veterans come back. The, the you poor thing is going to turn them off pretty fast, too. It's not what they're looking for. They're just looking for an ordinary human being to put their arms around them, give them a hug. That's not being a victim. That's being just, I want to come home. Well, one of the things, too, that you taught that I think is so important about both of your books is the literary aspect. Because in in the 20th century, so many of our visions of war and experiences of war have come through television and movies. Mm -hmm. And I think those, as powerful as experiences of TV or movies, even like the Vietnam, the TV war, and movies like Apocalypse Now and, mm -hmm. and, and such, they still, there's a distance between you and the, and the work of art. Yeah. When you're in literature, when you read something like Matterhorn, you are in that place. And That's it's right. a very, very different experience, I think. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to the more primitive what cultures, the Greek cultures. They wrote their things down. You had to read the mm -hmm. Iliad. <laughs> yeah, or they recited it, mm -hmm. and you got caught up in it as well because they weren't, you weren't seeing pictures. Mm -hmm. I mean, if a, if a poet was reciting what was going on, then you had the same reaction as reading, mm -hmm. uh, just a different medium. No, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, the, the issue of, of TV or movies, first of all, you can't get inside anybody's head unless they do really on-the-nose stupid dialogue. Hi, I'm thinking about this right now. Well, you'll turn the set off, right? Um, and uh, the other thing is is that they, they are under extreme constraints to uh, get it done fast. I mean, what's the longest movie? Two hours? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, how are you going to do that without skipping over a great deal of, of insight and a great deal of detail? 
that uh, gets you in, into the character. Uh, so, no, I agree with you 100%. That's where literature will always be a different art medium than movies and does different things. doesn't mean it's a better medium than good, good filmmaking, but the two of them don't, don't uh, explore the world in, in anywhere near the same way, even though they both use stories uh, as a sort of a fundamental way of holding the structure of the artwork together. Now, uh, you talk about guilt, and, and I think this is important, an important part of, mm-hmm. of your work. And, and again, this comes back to uh, your uh, perspective, which is, uh, I think, a deeply spiritual one. Mm-hmm. I think this is really what's so important about this book because there are, it's not something, as you say, that you can solve, you know, spiritual, spiritual preparation for War 101. Exactly, it's yeah. Not, not, we, don't, we haven't worked that one out yet, and we're never going to. No, I mean, I had this experience. It was, uh, I was at Quantico. The Marine Corps has been wonderful. They, they invited me to Quantico just, just about what was it, four days ago and uh, to talk to the instructors at the basic school. These are the people that are teaching the new lieutenants about going to war. And all of them are combat veterans, three, four tours easily. And one of these instructors said to me, he says, look, we're trying, because you know, one of the things that the book talks about is that we're letting veterans down because we're not, we're not trying hard enough to reintegrate them. I mean, I was on a radio program a week ago with a returning Afghan veteran with 10th Mountain Division, and he's in college now. Uh, and he's been back a couple of years. He's been back two years, and three of the guys that he served with have committed suicide. Okay, now that's a, just a little data point, but I'm going, that's a horrific data point, and I know that that's going on. And like this, this one Marine officer, he says, we're trying so hard. He says, what do we do, though? He says, I'm a Marine. I'm not a psychologist. We would love to just say, well, well, the military ought to take care of this. You know, why don't they just do, you know, uh, preparation 101 and then, and then leaving the service 102. Uh, they're not prepared for it, and they don't have enough time. Uh, one of the questions that was asked by this group of officers at the basic school, uh, one of the officers says, well, how do we, how do we know if, which program is succeeding? We've got five or six that we're working with here. And I said, well, to me, the measurement system is the, the suicide rate and the drug and alcohol addiction rates. If you, if you can uh, track those, you'll have an idea of which programs are working. The problem is you won't know those statistics for 20 years. So there's no way that an institution can solve this problem by having, you know, uh, leaving the military 102 and have any way of knowing if it's an effective program or not. It's got to come back to the culture at large and it's got to come back to, to organizations like the Veterans Administration or like... Uh, here in San Francisco, Swords to Plowshares, which is an, a private organization that helps veterans adjust. Um, and uh, there's another group called Vet Corps, which is, was this, this uh, army guy that was a veteran of Afghanistan who's a member of. Those are where we're going to have to start putting our efforts and, and getting, getting funding because, uh, quite frankly, I mean, the VA is, is underfunded as far as helping returning veterans. I mean, you know, you're supposed to get medical care, and so I, I remember I wanted to see a doctor, just a general checkup. Oh, that'll be fine. It'll be nine months before you can see the doctor. Well, I think a lot could go wrong in nine months before I see this doctor. I'm going like, hmm. And, and, you know, we like to believe, well, I can get on my high horse here, that we can do wars without 
cost. It's like, well, let them volunteer. It's not, I, I want to go shopping. And we didn't even pay our taxes. We borrowed the money from the Chinese to fight these wars. So that's, to me, that's not a republic. That's just children, you know, and we got to do better. I mean, I, uh, one of the things you talk about <laughs> is the shadow self. And right. I think this is a critical part of your understanding of humans and soldiers and how humans become soldiers mm -hmm. and how soldiers deal with what they have to do, how yeah. warriors have to deal right. with that, what they have to do. Yeah, I think that one of the things that just on the same theme about, you know, growing up and, and taking responsibility, we are not the top animal on the food chain because we're nice. All right. I mean, we we don't automatically say, "Oh, the poor whales, you know, we shouldn't hurt them," or "the poor deer, we should." I mean, we're merciless killers, and we we continue to do things to our environment that that are really not nice. So, d deep inside of us is a very aggressive nature. Uh, we are on the top. We're a very fierce species. Uh, there's been no other animal species that has overcome us, and. We would like to pretend, I think, that we, we actually aren't that way. We're actually just, we're just really good. You know, we're pixie dust too, just like, just like the religions. And that people somehow go into the military and they go through army boot camp or marine boot camp and they get turned into killers. Uh-uh. They're killers to start with, but they've got the restraints of civilization that, has, that keeps the killer instincts under some kind of control. And we also have a, a psychological mechanism called repression, which is that even though I might want to be, a, a, I could be just a, a very angry person as long as I keep it under wraps and repressed, uh, I can sort of get along in life and not, you know, go around choking people. But it's a very thin veneer, our own psychological control. Just, have you ever been near a mob? I mean, it's unbelievable how, how it's like frightening when that, cobweb of civilization gets removed how savage we can be and uh, you, see, you can see on television or you can read histories of World War II about how savage we can be as humans what, you, what I call boot camp is finishing school alright the raw material has been, been put together for 18 years by our culture and our genetics and then you go to boot camp, and boot camp says, now we're going to remove the constraint. That's what's happening there. They don't turn into killers. They just allow the natural killer to come out. And what's the problem is, is that people who think that they don't have that dark side to their own nature, that they themselves are capable of doing all of these things, um, they're more dangerous because I think to a large extent that's what happened when the veterans of Vietnam came home is that people just cast that killer darkness that is in their own psyches instead of admitting that they are like that they threw it onto uh, the returning soldiers and said you're the killers not me I'm not like you and getting that concept through it's Carl Jung's concept uh, he calls it the shadow uh, is is another step toward maturity uh, the way that, 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 you know, the peace protesters were behaving in often cases was absolutely no different than, than just, you know, savagely making the other side an enemy and, and pseudo-speciating them. I mean, I can remember standing on a street corner and having people calling me names and you know, waving North Vietnamese flags at me and uh, shouting obscenities and going, you don't know who I am. 
I'm just me. I'm just a person. But to them, I wasn't a person. I was, you know, whatever you, they wanted to call me, baby killer or whatever. And that's just projecting our own evil onto someone else. And it's part of being young. Uh, we got to learn how to overcome that. But it's part of growing up. But I think the culture has to take a little more responsibility for this darkness in us. Look around, see what we've done. <laughs> it isn't done by, by soldiers and Marines. It's done by us. <laughs> you know, one of the things you talk about, I think that's kind of interesting, that uh, a, a man you, you call Gunny Mike. Right. And I think we, it sounds like we really need, the Gunny Mike figure needs to be really in, important in, yeah. in, the, in the, the whole setup. And yeah. So explain who he was to <laughs> you and, yeah. and who, what that kind of figure does. He's a, he's a great character. Um, first of all, you have to set some context. Um, I was the second oldest in my company uh, at some point. There, we would occasionally get old guys in who were 26 or 27. Uh, you know, staff sergeants, but for, for a period of time we didn't have any of them and I was the second oldest. I was 23 and my company commander was the oldest. He was also 23. He was just six months older than I was. So everybody else is 20, 19, all right? We're, we're like, the 23-year-old's like an older brother to the 19-year-old. And in comes uh, a guy named Gunny Mike. He'd been busted back from first sergeant and he was probably in his 40s. So to the kids, it was like grandfather showed up. I mean, and he was overweight. He'd been in stateside, uh, and uh, he was a hard-drinking sort of career Marine off, uh, non-commissioned officer. And he had a big heart. And what he got busted for is that he, uh, and actually I made a little bit of a story in Matterhorn about this, he had diverted a bunch of water supplies at Camp Pendleton and had dug a swimming pool out of the, with some requisitioned uh, earth-moving equipment. And... Well, he did it without asking any permission, and he got in big trouble for it because he just said, well, the kids don't have any place to swim, you know, the kids. And uh, they busted him back to gunnery sergeant and sent him to Vietnam. Well, he got dropped into the jungle where we were, and, you know, he's 25 years older than everybody else, and he was huffing and puffing, and we thought he was going to die. And after about two days, uh, you know, the sk I was the executive officer, and the skipper and I talked, I said, what are we going to do with Gunny Mike? He's gonna he's gonna have a heart attack out here, and he wouldn't he wouldn't complain. But we could watch him, uh, literally hanging on to life. He was because it's hard work out there. I mean, you are, I mean, Marines on in combat are rangy. There's no there is no body fat. I mean, you know, they're aerobic machines. And a guy coming who's 45 years old coming from drinking hard at Camp Pendleton is going to die out there, not from enemy bullets either. So we said to him, look, we need help back in the rear. And it was just a way of saving face. He knew what the score was. And the skipper ordered him back. He said, we got to take care of the tent. We're having trouble getting supplies. We need someone who knows the system. Built him up. And uh, I never forget, he, he had tears in his eyes. And he saluted. You don't salute in combat because it just picks out who the officers are. And he went back. And what he did, he became an institution. He, he started to just take care of everybody. And, you know, kids would come through and Gunny Mike would find them clothes. And Gunny Mike would find machine gun barrels. And Gunny Mike would, because he, he was just, he knew the system and he knew how to operate it. And I remember one night I had come back for the pay or something. I sort of believe we'd get paid and we'd come back in and I'd get this military payment currency and take it back out to the kids in the, in the bush. It was about 2 in the morning, and a new kid had showed up. 
and I was I was you know half in, in crock because I, I drank a lot because I was afraid I didn't want to go back out in the bush and there was this new kid who was just ashen faced because it was his first day that he was going to go out in the bush he was going out with me in fact right, when we as soon as it got daylight and Gunny Mike stayed up with him hours that night I can remember this candle burning down I'd wake up in, you know, in, in sort of a stupor and he'd still be talking to this kid this kid just be talking and I realized that this this guy had was serving a function, which is an older man helping younger men with their troubles. I mean, and they call it uh, psychologists call it co-counseling, uh, sort of you know peer-to-peer counseling. Although Gunny Mike was way older, but he was a natural at it. He didn't have any training at it, but the way he dealt with kids was that they would just open up, and the fear would come out, and the the, the anxiety and uh, the sadness because you know their girlfriend just just dumped them from back home, and he was he was always he was an empathetic ear, and uh, that's a very important function. Uh, again, which you know it's it's hard to just sort of institutionalize that, uh, but I think if in some some ways you could start to to train people, uh, especially uh, officers and NCOs who are career people who do just like any managers deal with a lot of personnel if you could give them more skills with dealing with you know personnel issues like my girlfriend dumped me or I'm scared shitless because I'm about to you know die uh, how do you handle that well I think just even some there you could do sort of co-counseling 101 and you could actually train people to do do it better and I don't know what the military is doing in that light I think that they'd be wide open to, to trying to, to make it better because any any good personnel manager wants this wants their people to, to function and that's what we're talking about here so Gunny Mike was a interesting character I'd love to write a novel about him but I think I'm done writing war books you know um in the end, as we read this book, you, you talk about something, and I think this is what's, what strikes us most, is that you describe war as transcendent, and, mm-hmm. and that you, the, the first command that a warrior has to give himself is to command yourself. Right. Yeah. Um, that's the difficult thing, because you, 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 first of all, you get into a situation in general, you're very young, uh, which is a problem all to itself, but they are the best warriors. So we have a, a dilemma here. The best warriors are very young. Uh, and you give them enormous power. I mean, it's beyond belief what a, a squad leader in the Marine Corps can do. They can bring in cruise missiles from submarines. They can get B-52 bombers to drop stuff. I mean, the amount of power that a 19 or 20 year old kid can can wield in a war is beyond anything that most civilians could ever imagine. Not to mention life and death authority over people. 12 guys in his squad. Um, if you don't watch it, you can get a big head. It's like stealing cars in, you know, in civilian life because hell, I gotta go to a party. Uh, and and uh, Understanding that kind of power, that kind of enormous power, is something that's very important. And the other thing is this: is this this uh, the shadow part of you, which we've talked about, is that if you 
aren't aware of that shadow part of you, you can do horrible things because you have all this power. And if the shadow part takes over, and I talk about one point where it, where it kind of did in, in my case because a, a very uh, iconic figure in our company was killed and we just wanted to take revenge. So that's not a good motive, but uh, I wasn't watching myself and the revenge monster came out and we took revenge. We didn't allow any prisoners to be taken in the next assault. We just killed everybody. I'm not proud of that. I wish I had managed to uh, know, know that the rage monster, that the revenge monster was activated and then be able to command myself and say, no, I'm not, this is not right to take revenge. And we have a job to do. That's something you found, you wrote it differently. It took you a while to even get oh, the yeah. writing down. Absolutely, because I, I, I did not want to write the truth. I wanted to write a story that was made up about the whole thing. And what, and one of the things that was odd about it is I wanted to take I want to take responsibility for killing more people than I did because I wanted to sort of embellish my part of this, you know, I'm a real tough guy sort of stuff, you know, hey, I'm the meanest, can we swear on, on a yes. website, I'm the meanest motherfucker in the valley, you know, because I'm, I was, you know, I was young, I wanted to be the meanest motherfucker in the valley, you know, don't mess with me. And uh, no, that's, that's not the right attitude, especially when you have the kind of power that a, a, even, like I said, the most junior officer in the Marine Corps has. It's the message of controlling and knowing who you are and knowing yourself and, and controlling that, that inner shadow is so important to avoid uh, atrocities, basically. I've been speaking with Carl Marlandis. His new book is What It Is Like to Go to War. Thank you for joining me, Carl. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.